0: Loving Father, this week we as a culture have celebrated All Hallows Eve, Halloween, All Saints Day, the Day of the Dead, and All Souls Day. We spent more money and time on this celebration than we did on Easter. Thanksgiving, or any other holiday other than Christmas combined. Forgive us for not focusing on placing a greater emphasis on thanking you for your blessings in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which purchased for us eternal life. It's true, we spend more time and resources on things that have either little meaning or eternal value, help us to refocus our time. Please open our eyes so that we see the important things, things that have eternal value. Our relationship with you made possible by our Savior Jesus Christ. Our need to worship and to praise you. Our need to spend time in your word and in prayer. Our need to share Christ with others. Our need to teach by word and by living example the truth of your word to our children and our children's children. Forgive us, Lord, for being distracted and captivated by things not having eternal value. We lift up our church-supported missionaries and the believers that they are discipling and the non-believers they are sharing the truth of your word and salvation through Jesus with. We pray for your protection over them and your wisdom in what they do. We pray for our pastors and leaders that you would bless them, guide them, and keep them physically and spiritually safe. We pray for us as a church that we corporately and individually focus on prayer, that we not declare our time in prayer this weekend as a one-and-done event, but rather recognize the joy, importance, and privilege of entering into the very presence of God, and that you desire to spend time with us. Eternal Father, we also come before you as our great physician. We thank you for Malia Broderick's cancer not having spread. and continue to pray for healing. We pray for Miles Miller who's going to having a colonoscopy procedure this Tuesday. We pray for wisdom for the doctors and for continued healing. We also pray for Shirley Childs, who on Monday is going to be having kidney surgery. We pray for continued healing for Richard Talley's grandchild. We continue to pray for Richard Steele, who was in the hospital for four days, for answers to his low potassium level. Lord, we pray for Walter Carter. We pray for him and his caregivers that they not give up. And, Lord, we continue to pray for the Moyer family, praising God for the improvements, but praying for total and complete healing. And we're able to pray these things in the name of Jesus because he told us to, he invites us to, and it's his will. God bless us today, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Let's have the kids um, go ahead and be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. And uh, parents, you can pick them up at the uh, end of the service upstairs. They'll greet their teachers out in the lobby. Um, Thank you to all of you that joined us yesterday, too. We had uh, over 90 people here all told... um, at, at various points throughout the day, including all the kids and the leaders and the adults here in for the prayer conference. Um, it was a refreshing time, an encouraging time. And um, just wanted to say to, to all of you, we will make those messages available to you if you want them. We'll have them on the, uh, on the podcast and we'll email you out when we have those um, posted and distributed. There's still our monthly prayer guide for November is available on the, black, on the back black table back here if you want to pray along with our church. Uh, We're not giving up here. As Larry said, that was a moment in time, but that wasn't the goal yesterday's conference. It was a a new step forward. So you're going to hear us continue to emphasize prayer and see how we can grow in prayer individually and corporately as a whole body. Um, This week in the life of the church, I want to invite you, if you haven't uh, been to a new member's lunch. If you haven't become a member, uh, we'd love to have you. We have a lunch scheduled for today, at immediately after the service. And we have a few families that are signed up for that. If you didn't sign up for that, but are interested in joining us for that, come and talk to me after the service, and we'd still love to have you. The way these lunches work is they're very informational. Kind of give you an overview. Here's who we are as a church. Here are the big things you need to know. Um, you have the opportunity to join Uh, At the end of the lunch, you don't have to, though. It's not a requirement. You can still come and just enjoy lunch and hear the information, um, and it's your decision on whether you make the final decision to to join or not. So even if it's your first time here this morning, we'd love to have you if you want to get to know a little bit more about the church. Uh, Also this afternoon, we have another pickleball event. Um, We've had several of those. And if you are interested uh, in—that's 3 to 5 today at Lakeshore Park— and Carol McFarlane is hosting that, setting that stuff up. If you're interested, catch Carol at the end of the service today, or catch me and tell me, or wave at Carol right now, or yell out, I'm coming, something like that, just so she knows how many people are going to be there. Anybody know they're going to Pickleball today? Hey, we got a couple hands over here. Go, it's fun. Um, It's a great time together to meet new people in the church and um, just learn. You don't have to be a pro if you've never played before and you think pickleball is a cult and you don't know what it is, just go. It's not a cult. It's just fun. Um, okay, then this Saturday is our men's breakfast, and, um, and it's a special Saturday. Um, November 11th, this coming Saturday, our men will be here for breakfast And then, guys, you're invited to hang out all day. And there's going to be some guys smoking meat all day. You don't have to smoke meat all day. You don't have to even help. You can just stay and hang out. And um, then that evening, everyone is invited that evening to our fall cookout where we'll have activities for kids. We'll have some inflatables. We'll have family games. We'll have all sorts of stuff going on that evening. And we'll have plenty of food for everybody. So we'd love to see all of you that evening, November 11th. Next Sunday is baby dedication, the 12th. If anyone wants information about that, we'd love to have you there, um, or we'd love to include your child in that. And the Sunday after that, you see this sheet. We're already in the Thanksgiving season, so pay attention to that. Um, and then finally, I want to introduce to you a um, women's event that is coming in December. December the 9th, there is a Christmas Advent themed live stream that we're hosting here that you're going to ladies continue to get more information about. Um, But I want you to go ahead and save the date for December 9th for our next women's ministry event. It will be um, good. It will be edifying and encouraging. So we'd love to have you there. Uh, Now, I'm going to show you another video testimony. Um, It's been really fun the last few weeks to have some people in our church sit down and share what god is doing in their lives through prayer and encourage the rest of us to go deeper in prayer so here's another one
2: i became a christian in 1972 and from that time till now i've never ceased to be amazed that the god of the universe and the universe is only a fragment of his greatness has given us a book that tells us all we need to know about ourselves and him, about life and death, about time and eternity. His book is a sizable one, but it's not huge. And I'm touched that he whittled down the vastness of who he is to a size that's suitable for little human beings. In the fourth gospel, John says that if he were to write all that Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain those books. But God, our God, has given us just one, which is sufficient for all our needs. Like you, I want to know this book better and better by reading it daily. In December of 2019, my husband John died suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere after 50 years of marriage. Needless to say, this was a traumatic and confusing event for me. Then 11 months later, my oldest grandchild, my 20-year-old grandson Nick, a student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, died in the same manner out of nowhere. Of course my confusion, my trauma were greatly intensified. I found I could no longer concentrate on reading the Bible. My thoughts were too fragmented, my concentration pretty much nil. So God, our kind God, again whittled down his words, giving me just a few words that were life to me during that time and calmed and quieted my soul. They were words from 1 Peter, If necessary, these trials have come upon you. And I understood that from God's point of view, these deaths were indeed necessary. And why? The overall answer to that comes in the next chapter where Peter says that God is building the true temple, the temple of living stones, as his overarching plan for history. As physical stones are shaped for their position in human temples by hammer blows, so living stones are shaped for their individual places in the eternal spiritual temple, in great part by suffering. That was enough for me. It was bite-sized but profound truth and quieted my soul. But then I found as I was not capable of receiving many words, I also was not capable of giving many words. I could not pray coherently or systematically. My prayers were words and sentences here and there. That's all I was capable of for weeks and even months. And that is when the mighty and beautiful body of Christ, the Church of the Living God, moved in and prayed for me. We're quite a large family now and have friends and acquaintances in many places. So in this country, in Canada, in different countries all over the world, brothers and sisters held us up again and again before the throne of grace. We could not have survived those days without them. So I commend to you the prayer that is vital, that we uphold one another before God's throne in the trials and challenges of life. When one is weak, Others have to be strong and persistent on behalf of that person. This is what it means to be a body. And then I began to think of the many people in our world, in our culture, who are confused and traumatized as I was, but with no answers from the word of God and nobody praying for them. I began to think of the encroaching Satanism and occultism that are so quickly becoming mainstreamed in our society i began to think of leaders and trendsetters who are determined to invert reality and declare good to be evil and evil to be good and all of this in the face of a holy god this is a lost world this is an evil world god judges societies like ours and i think most of us would agree that we see this happening so how should we christians respond i think the most important thing we have to see clearly is that we alone We who've been cleansed by the blood of Christ have the right to approach God's throne boldly and persistently, asking him to shed light, truth, and grace on this country, on our world, to build his church from all nations and tongues and tribes, to have mercy on us. No one else can do it. It's us or nobody. Our children and grandchildren are going to inherit our world. They will inherit a world that has been prayed for, that has been committed to our great prayer-answering God, or a world that has not been. And we determine now, in our day, which it will be.
1: Let's pray. Father, we do long to see our children and grandchildren inherit a world covered in prayer, We know your heart for the nations. We know your love for people. And we know that you are preparing a kingdom that will include every nation, tongue, and tribe. God, we don't know the particulars of how and when, exactly what process you're going through to build that kingdom, but we know that we're a part as your kingdom ambassadors, and we're a part as your kingdom intercessors. And so, Father, we entrust ourselves to You. We entrust our world to You. We entrust this church to You. Father, we long to sing Your kingdom come and see Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long to see nations come to You. We long to see the lost in our lives come to You. Father, give us hearts not just to pray for the nations. We do. We pray for the nations. We pray for those that are far off, those that have never heard the gospel, those that are worshiping false gods now. But Father, we pray for those that are physically more near to us the loved ones that have rejected you, the neighbors that have rejected you, the, the children, the, the parents, the extended family members of this church that have heard of you and rejected you. Father, we pray for their spiritual blinders to fall off. We pray for new sight for new eyes. We pray for an encounter. And God, as we open your word this morning, we pray that each of us would encounter you in a fresh way this morning, knowing that many of us have, have already encountered you in a meaningful way to result in new life and salvation and regeneration um, through the cross resurrection of Jesus. But Father, now we come to Your Word in a fresh way. And Father, we want our hearts to again be enlivened with new morning mercies. We want the ongoing transformation of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so, Father, as we open Your Word, will You speak to us, and will You lead us into Your truth? And in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to largely be in First Samuel chapter 5 in one of the um, more surprising stories of this short series that we're doing. Um, I've told you that uh, for three months we're focusing on encountering God. And as we focused on that, we spent a month looking at the life of Jesus and people that interacted face-to-face with the person of Jesus in the Gospels. And then we spent a month on the family of Abraham we looked at how Abraham multiple times encountered God, looked at how um, uh, Sarah did and how Abraham's grandson Jacob did, and we saw the, the interplay there. And now we're moving on to a couple of Old Testament stories that are not from the life of Abraham that show the third person of the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, and his presence in, in powerful, powerful ways. Um, So 1 Samuel 5, we'll actually go through about six chapters um, a little bit, but we'll kind of focus in on 1 Samuel 5. But first, I want to talk about something very important to me that probably is not important to you, and that's okay. We're going to talk about baseball. The World Series has now been completed. The season ended how probably nobody in this room would have preferred it to end um, and the Texas Rangers are the champions. Great for them. Congratulations. But I brought a Cincinnati Reds hat for a reason. Um, when I was 10 years old, um, of all the things I cared about, I'm fairly certain baseball was number one. And of all the things that, that I prayed for at 10 years old, baseball might have been number one um, because, you know, you pray for what your heart desires and... Um, Baseball was that thing for me. Um, But what 10-year-old boys do, 8 years, 9 years, 10 years, they they develop these sort of customs, and, and little boys don't make this up. They learn them from big boys. But just so you know, little boys, the thing that they do is when they're in trouble in a baseball game, you get a little superstitious, right? Baseball is like the center of superstition within our culture. And so you start doing these things like wearing your hat in, in different ways and you call it a rally hat. And you think if, if only everybody in the dugout just wears their hat like this, then the guy up there, it's somehow going to help him get a hit. And then if you get really desperate, there's, there's variations. I mean, this is like the King Griffey Jr., where you think you're King Griffey Jr. just for a moment, but it never actually works because nobody's King Griffey Jr., and when he was a Cincinnati Red, he wasn't even King Griffey Jr. himself. But then, you get the desperate, the desperate kind, you put it all the way inside out, you start wearing it like this, and that doesn't work, and you wear it sideways, and you think something, anything, I just need a rally. So this is a, a rally cap. How long are y'all comfortable with me wearing this? Is this, That's mostly a jest question. Okay, I'm done with that. Um, but, then there's, but then little boys grow up, right? And then you go from being superstitious to just a little-stitious. And every sports fan is a little-stitious. And so, you, you adult sports fans, you have your own things. You probably aren't wearing rally caps in your living room, some of you are, and I'm sorry for your family if you are. But, um, but you might move from seat to seat based on how your team is playing, right? Or you might walk out of the room because they scored a touchdown when you were in the kitchen and you walked into the living room and all of a sudden the other team scored a touchdown and you think, well, I'm just better if I'm over here. So I'm going over here. Or you start to notice and you're like, man, the Braves win every time I'm there. Honey, i got to go to this playoff series. i, I, I just got to be there because they, there's just something. They win when I'm there, so I'm just, I just need to be there. But sports brings that out in us. These superstitions. But then these superstitions, and, and just so you know, it's not just us as fans, the pros do it too. And you can read all the articles about the, the gross socks and underwear stories and the, the pregame meals and what you do before and after a game. And the athletes, the, the big boys, the big boys that make the big bucks, they believe it too. And what happens with superstition is you is it's very pragmatic. You sort of just decide, I'm going to leave that there on display, and Josh is going to make sure it never shows up on camera. Um, But the superstition is, at its root, pragmatic. It works one time, and you think, ooh, I'm going to do it that way again. They played really well when I was sitting in this seat, and they were terrible when I was over there. So I'm going to sit back in this seat, because there's something lucky, there's something about this seat. Well, pragmatism, superstition, it, it is paganism. And what we're going to dive into today is the heart of paganism, not just in the nations around Israel, but in Israel. Paganism is inherently pragmatic. If it works, let's do it. If it's successful, let's adopt it into our theology, into our view of the world. We did this thing this one time. Let's do it that way another time. As we focus on encountering God in 1 Samuel 5, the title I've given this is somewhat um, brave, I guess, because I'm calling it Dagon Encounters God. Here's the thing, y'all. Dagon ain't real. Dagon's a false god. But this story, the heart of this story that I'm going to share with you today, is about a false God, an idol, a, an object of superstition encountering the presence of God in a real way and what happens. But in this story, you'll see everybody in the story is a little superstitious. And even the thing that's carrying the presence of God into the room is, in the eyes of God's own people, a superstitious object. That they behave as if they're some power in the object and if they just do this thing with the object then God's going to bless them without actually listening worshipping and following the God who is there 1st Samuel chapter 5 we'll pick up the story and then we'll go back and we'll go all over the first few chapters of 1st Samuel and we'll give you the full sense of what happened but here's the highlight when the Philistines captured the ark of God they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Okay, so Israel, the people of God, have lost a battle and they've lost the ark, the ark of the covenant, an important object for the manifestation of of Yahweh's presence in the people of God. Ark of the Covenant holds several objects, including the law of Moses, including the staff of Aaron, and is an object where God's presence is particularly powerful, that was in the tabernacle, in the holiest place, as they went through the wilderness. And so this, this Ark of the Covenant is important for God's presence among his people. But the fact that Israel has fallen to such an extent that the Ark of the Covenant has been lost... Raises a lot of questions. How did this happen? How did it get this bad? Philistia, the Philistines, they're the enemies of God's people. Dagon is a false god, one of the gods, one of multiple gods of the Philistines. Okay, so we'll pick it up there. So they brought, now this is the superstitious, pragmatist paganism, right? They brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Philistine temple and set it right next to their god, Dagon. And this is what happens. It's actually really funny. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of Yahweh, the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back into place. So it's like, what do you think happened? Those those teenage boys, they always are looking to cause trouble somewhere. What, what are the priests of Dagon thinking at this point? Like, how did Dagon fall down, face down in front of this object, the Ark of the Covenant? Clearly, there were some teenage boys that were just messing around, right? So what they do, their reaction is, you just put them back. Sorry, Dagon. Sorry you fell down. Sorry, God. Let's just put him back in his place. Inanimate God in an inanimate place. So, the next day, Verse 4, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So in some way, it changes their worship from this point on, changes their understanding of who Dagon is from this point on, certainly changes their understanding of who Yahweh is and what the Ark of the Covenant represents from this day on. And just so you know, in ancient religion, in ancient paganism and and idolatry, it's important to know that it's not random what's happening here. The head is the seat of wisdom. The hands are the seat of power. So when you bow, you bow your head so that you say to the person you're bowing to, you're more wise than I am. Therefore, I bring my head down. And when you prostrate and you lay your arms out, you're saying, I surrender my power and strength before you. So day one, Dagon bows all wisdom before God Almighty and folds his hands out. I surrender my power to you. And when the priest said, well, we're just going to put him back, day two, all of a sudden, there's no head because there's no wisdom in a false god, an inanimate idol. And his hands are cut off because there's no power in that object that had been put in the temple. And by now you're thinking, boy, that's an interesting story. Tim, why, where are you going with this? Why is this there? What does that have to do with us? Glad you asked. That's why we're here. Um, Four parts to this sermon. What the story says about Israel, what the story says about Philistia, what the story says about God, and finally, most importantly, what the story says about us and our relationship to this God. Number one, what the story tells us about God. Israel had turned against God. The context of, of 1 Samuel 5 is not out of nowhere. You have to go all the way back to um, chapters 1 and 2, and by the end of chapter 2, you see that the high priest of Israel has raised two boys that are worthless. That's what the Bible says. That's not, my, that's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. Eli is the high priest. First Samuel is the story of Samuel. Samuel is a faithful, faithful servant of God. His mother is faithful. It's beautiful. But Samuel and Hannah in this story are contrasted with Eli, who has just sort of coasted through the high priestly role, and Hophni and Phinehas, who have taken advantage of the high priestly role, or the priestly role. So Hophni and Phinehas, they have cheated the system, the sacrificial system. The short version of why they're so worthless in chapter 2 is that the priests would get leftover meat that was sacrificed to idol. Hophni and Phinehas didn't want the leftovers to eat after the meat was sacrificed to idol. They wanted the best part. So they started working the system to manipulate the sinful people of Israel into not fully offering their sacrifices so that Hophni and Phinehas could have a better cut of meat and not the leftovers after God had gotten the choice sacrifice. So they were evil in their priestly role. But it's not just them that's the problem. They're representatives of the whole nation that had basically turned their back on God and gone their own way. That's the story of Hophni and Phinehas. Worthless priests, an exact quote from 1 Samuel 2, 12. But they represented the nation as a whole. They weren't the only people like that. Israel's worship, in fact, had turned into a form of paganism in that it was superstitious, like rally caps. Because here's here's Israel's plan. Here's the synopsis of of chapter 4, the battle that... That Israel loses. In chapter 4, what happens is the nation of Israel goes to war against Philistia and Israel loses. So what's their solution? Their solution is, hey, we have this sacred object called the Ark of the Lord and it's where God's presence is and it's really powerful. So all we got to do to win the battle is take it with us. And if we take it with us, it doesn't matter where our hearts are. It doesn't matter where our worship is. It doesn't matter that we are ignoring God and worshiping idols. It doesn't matter what we do or how we treat the presence of God. If we just take this thing that represents the presence of God and we take it up to the battle lines, to the battlefront, then we'll have victory over Philistia. That superstition doesn't work because God actually uses it as an opportunity to judge The faithless, worthless sons of Eli. Because who has to take the Ark of the Covenant to the battle battle lines? Well, the sons of the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas. So they take the Ark of the Covenant like they're supposed to, and they lose. And Hophni and Phinehas die. And the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the enemies of God's people. And then Eli, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, the high priest, he hears about it, and he dies. Because he's so traumatized by the news, not, and this is important, not that his sons have died, he is more shocked by the news that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by an evil nation, and he dies. So now you have no Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God. You have no high priest, you have no next-in-line high priest, because they're all dead. Because the Israelites sought to do it the superstitious way after 4000 israelites die in day 1 of the battle they think it's the ark of the covenant it's only the ark of the covenant it's god is going to come and protect his people and here let's let's be real for a second i'll be a little bit more generous to the israelites i mean right now let's be a little bit more generous how many times did god say i'll fight for you countless How many times did God say, I've chosen you, I'm going to fight for you? Countless times. I mean, all throughout the Old Covenant Covenant Scriptures. We've just been talking about, last week we talked about Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel, the nation, was named after the guy, Israel, who used to be Jacob. And what does the name Israel mean? God fights. And so the point of Israel was not to become a mighty warrior nation. The point of Israel was to let God do the heavy lifting. Let God fight for them. But they had strayed so far that they had resulted in a superstitious form of worship where they said it doesn't matter what our lives are, it doesn't matter where our faith is, it doesn't matter where our sin is and sacrifices is, it doesn't matter how we worship God as long as we have the Ark of the Covenant. They had turned from God and they had turned to superstition. Just like the pagans around them. Chapter 4 ends in a very sad note. The grandson of Eli, the son of Phinehas, was born right after both Phinehas and Eli had died. And the boy's name is Ichabod. And the name Ichabod means the glory has departed from Israel. Everybody knows how bad it is. It's real bad in Israel. The presence of God has left us, the glory of God has left us. And then 1 Samuel 5, what happens when the glory of God shows up in a pagan temple? He takes control immediately. So let's turn to the Philistines in chapter 5. What does the story tell us about the Philistines? They're pragmatic. They do what works. At the end of chapter 4, the middle of chapter 4, the Philistines are afraid of going to battle with the Israelites. Why? Because they've heard the stories too. They've heard the stories you've heard. They know about what God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, did to the Egyptians. They're not afraid of the Israelites. They killed 4,000 Israelites the day before. They're afraid of the God of Israel. So when the Philistines hear that the Ark of the Covenant, that the dwelling place of Yahweh is coming to the front lines of the battle, they're like, oh no, we might have bit off more than we can chew. Because these measly people, they're easy to defeat. But their God, he he defeated Egypt on their behalf. So they know about Yahweh. But then when they conquer the Israelites, they're like, huh, well, it didn't work for them. But we don't know what to do with this ark thing. There's tablets with laws on them inside. There's a staff inside. There's some blood sprinkled on the outside. We're just going to put it on a cart, and we're going to go put it in the temple like all the other gods, and we're just going to set it there. Superstition, paganism, what we would call pragmatism. This god works. He defeated Egypt. So just in case he works for us, we're going to put him where we put our other gods. They were not just pragmatic, they were idolatrous. They worshipped created things. They worshipped what they saw. That's the heart of paganism. Pragmatism and idolatry. You don't worship the supreme thing, you worship the created thing. And so then from there, after this whole episode where Dagon loses his head and his hands, they continue in their idolatry and their pragmatism. Because uh, from verse 5 on, there's a really interesting story of the Ark of the Covenant. And you can go back and, and read it, but I'll give you the short version. Okay? So the Ark is in Ashdod, and they're like, we can't keep it in the temple. He's destroying our gods. Let's get it out of there. Let's take it to Gath. Goes to Gath. God judges Gath. It doesn't go well for the people of Gath. So they're like, we can't keep it in Gath. Let's get it out of Gath. So they next decide in verse 10, we're going to take it to Ekron. What happens in Ekron? The people of Ekron meet the people at Gath at the gates. And they're like, no, 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 Don't bring that thing here. We don't want it. So Ashdod was, doesn't want it. Gath doesn't want it. Ekron doesn't want it. So finally, they're like, what are we going to do? We got to give it back to the Israelites. We can't, we can't keep it here. We've tried three cities of the Philistines, and nobody wants it. It, it brings calamity on whatever city it comes to, so we got to take it back to Israel. So they take it back to the Israelites at Beth Shemesh. And at Beth Shemesh, some men mishandle it, and they look at it, and some of the Israelites then die for their lack of appreciation, not of the object, but lack of appreciation of Yahweh, the Holy God. That's what the whole story is about, the presence of God, You don't mock the presence of God. You don't take lightly the presence of God. You don't mishandle the presence of God. And eventually, it ends up at the home of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. And Abinadab becomes basically a priest over it. And he takes care of it for 20 years. Until David, a faithful king, shows up and says, this is not the way it should be we got to bring it back to Jerusalem, to God's city, and we're going to do it the right way. But even on the way, 20 years later, is the story that maybe you've heard of this young man named Uzzah who reaches out and grabs the Ark of the Covenant. Well-meaning, but irreverent and disrespectful according to what God had said about his presence. And Uzzah died on the way. That's 2 Samuel 6. So it's a crazy story about Israel and Philistia. And we see Israel, they've turned their back on God. Israel has turned to superstition and paganism. Um, Philistia, they're pragmatic, they're idolatrous, but they are not properly reverencing the presence of God that's right there in their midst. So what does it tell us about God? Number one, and I love this point, God is not obligated to do things the same way, at the same time, every time. God's not obligated. God is not a God of superstition. And just because the Ark of the Covenant has, has been taken to military victories for God's people before it doesn't mean that the power is in the ark of the covenant and all you've got to do is just do this and here's the thing brothers and sisters here's where I'm going to move into us before it says on my outline I'm moving into us but here's where we move into us how many of us approach God superstitiously and think that if we just do the same thing the same way we're going to get the result that we got before here's what I mean how many of you can look back on a time in your life and say, there was this song that just melted my heart, that just warmed me and helped me turn to Jesus and fall in love with Jesus. And now that it's years later, and I've turned away, and I've grown cold, and I've, and I've lost some of that original fire and zeal, all I need is that experience again. So I run back to that song. And what you find in that song is nostalgia, maybe a little bit of warmth, a little bit of memory, but it's not quite the same. Or maybe you went to this retreat and you had this radical experience and you think, I just got to get back to that place. You go back to that place, back to that retreat. And it's nostalgia. It's, it's a little bit of fire. It's a little bit of God's prayer. It's just not, it's not quite the same. Or you remember this, this sermon that you listen to, and you go back and you listen to the audio because God changed your life through this sermon. And you're like, I've been walking with Christ for 20 years and heard 100 sermons since then, and this sermon, it's kind of just average. It changed my life 20 years ago. What is it? Because we don't treat the presence of God with superstition as if we just follow this formula and it must work this way every time if we follow the formula. And sometimes, even in our discipleship and in our ministry at the church, we accidentally fall into this. And sometimes we give, give, give applications to people and say, all you got to do is do this. Just do this. It's really simple. And you tell the kids, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 grow. And then they read the Bible and they're like, I, I don't know. I don't get it. It's, just, it's words on a page to me. And they pray and they're like, I, it doesn't feel like anybody's listening. It doesn't feel like anybody's listening. How long am I supposed to keep doing this? And when am I going to grow? Don't get me wrong. All these things are good. And all these things are beautiful. And God works. And God shows his presence. God manifests his presence in powerful ways through all sorts of means. But he doesn't always do it the same way. And he doesn't have to do it the same way. And just because you want to go back to the same verse and have the same emotional experience you had with God before, doesn't mean He's going to show up in the same way. It means that you've got to be a little bit more disciplined. You've got to walk with Him a little bit more carefully, a little bit more, um, with a little bit more commitment and less superstition. You can't just throw all the ingredients together in a bowl and stir it up and voila, God works. This is sort of the danger of of revivalism, of we schedule a revival, and we schedule that this week of the year, every year, we're going to have a revival, and God's going to show up, and it was really powerful, and we just do it the same way every year. We might bring in different speakers, but we're actually what we're asking is for God to work in the same way every time, and it's just not how he doesn't have to do that. Sometimes he does. He can. He obviously can. But sometimes when we try to manufacture the work of God through means and processes and say, we're going to do this, 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 and then get this result, God's math is different. God's equation is different. It's not boom, 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 therefore, boom. But there are some principles for what we can learn about how God does work. One of the principles is that it's always... True worship. He's always going to reject false pretenses. He's always going to reject false worship. Eli, there was a lot of good in Eli. And there was greatness in the little boy Samuel that was in the, in the temple or, or in, in Eli's home, praying, trying to seek out God, trying to learn and grow from from Eli, the little boy Samuel would, was a representation that God wasn't giving up on the people. But there was a whole lot of false pretense and false worship, and you cannot manipulate God into action based on false pretense and false worship. God responds to true worship. So, sing that song you've sung 20 times that has moved your heart so many times. Sing it again, but it's not the song. Read that Christian book that changed your life 20 years ago. Read it it again. It's not the song. It's not the author. It's the grace of God that's inherent within it. It's the presence of God that moves and works through that. Find new ways. C.S. Lewis communicates this point really powerfully. Because what does C.S. Lewis do? He doesn't say it. He gives you a picture. And the picture is, you never get to Narnia the same way. Seven books. Seven books. Seven different entrances into Narnia. Why? Because God God changes the way he works in individuals and he works in people differently And the same way that we don't want to just assume from a superstitious mindset, if we do this, then God's going to do this. We can't assume that if God worked in this way with me, I'm going to make you do the same thing or I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing and God's going to work in you the same way. That's not not going to happen. God's going to work in your children differently than he worked in you. And you can try, and, you can, and listen, give them the books that moved your heart. Give them the songs that moved your heart. Give them the things, the processes, the events, and say, this is what led to my growth in Jesus. Give those to your children. And then be ready that he's probably going to work in them a little differently than he worked in you. And it's going to be other speakers, it's going to be other books, it's going to be other songs, and that's a beautiful thing. Because God isn't as simple as our processes but wait he also is going to destroy your idols all along the way dagon falls down not once but twice dagon falls down the second time and he is completely dismembered no head meaning no wisdom no hands meaning no power the presence of god takes the wisdom and the power out of your idols and you say cool thanks tim I don't worship idols. I don't even know who Dagon is. I don't have any statues in my home. How does this do anything with me? I'm going to tell you every single one of us has idols that we're drawn to worship. The human heart is in fact an idol factory, not original to me. That's John Calvin 500 years ago. The human heart is an idol factory, meaning that the human heart is constantly generating new things to give worship, esteem, diligence towards, faithfulness towards. And so an idol can be anything that takes the place of God in your life, anything that draws your attention. The simplest way to find out what your idol is is to sit by yourself in a room and to let your thoughts wander. And where do your thoughts wander? Where do the daydreams go? Because the daydreams tend to go towards the things you're most passionate about, things you're most worried about, things you're most anxious about, things you're most excited about. Those things are taking the place of God in your heart and in your mind. And I've already confessed, 10 years old Tim Cheney, it was baseball. And, and I, was, I was a Christian at the time. I had believed the gospel. But what did I care about most? Being a better baseball player the Cincinnati Reds winning the World Series, which they did when I was five and never again since then. But those were the things that mattered most. Those were the idols. It could be money because you really want to provide for yourself and your family. It could be power because you want people to think well of you. It could be your own intelligence because you want people to know how smart you are, how wise you are, how experienced you are. It could be wisdom. You want people to look for you for advice and wisdom. It could be your career because you you want to invest everything in it and you give everything in it. It could be your children because that's where you really want your legacy to be and and when they were born, you just fell in love and you've never seen anything so beautiful and nothing's ever brought so much meaning to your life. So you put your kids right in the center of everything and they will buckle under that pressure. They will fall because they're not meant to be put in the place of God. It could be your marriage because you have fallen so in love with another person and you can't imagine what it would be like to lose that person. It could even be a ministry. It could even be the work that you do for the Lord and the impact that you have for Him because you want God to know, you want people to know that you are sold out for Jesus and you're going to do everything for Him. Any of those things can be an idol. And the question is, what would happen to you if you lose it? The question that too many of you have had to face. What would happen to you if you lost the career that you loved? What would happen to you if you lost the soul that you, or the the marriage that you loved? I remember speaking to a man at the death, at the funeral of his wife, good godly man. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, I never knew a soul could feel like this. Imagine, imagine what would have happened with a depth of that love if that man didn't have a God to fall on and had made his marriage, his relationship, his most important human relationship in his life, if that had been the center, if that had been everything, he would have been crushed that day. And as it was, he was still in great pain that day. I never knew a soul could feel like this. But God was still there restoring. You can't put any of those things in the, face or in the place of God because God will then have to, out of loving kindness to you, take them out of that place and move you back towards Him. If you rely on any of those things more than God, they will become God to you. And idols are terrible masters. Money is a great servant and can be used to serve God's kingdom and can be used wisely for God's glory and ministry to other people and provision for your family, and money is a terrible master. Your career can be a great place for you to live as a kingdom citizen and bring honor and glory to God, to work as as in every way unto the Lord, and your career is going to be a terrible master. He will be a slave driver. The loving thing for God to do is to destroy idols and take his proper place in the center of your heart. And so what discipleship means... What following Jesus means is finding ways to put God back in the center. Centering ourselves around Jesus, around who God is, the gospel of God, the love of God, and what it means to follow Him. Not in the superstitious way, all I got to do is do boom, 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 and therefore He'll work. But still in a disciplined way, because those elements of the boom, 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 they're pretty valid too. I'm all for reading your Bible and praying every day. But don't expect that empty Bible reading and empty prayer and empty church attendance, when your heart is still worshiping idols, don't expect that's going to change your heart and you're just going to change your life. It's putting you in the context to experience the presence of God. That's a beautiful thing. But when you walk into this place, You're in the context to experience the love of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the presence of God because the presence of God is here in this place. You're in the right context. But if at the center of your heart is still your addiction to pornography, if at the center of your heart is still your your need for notoriety and acclaim from human beings, if the center of your heart is still your kids getting their stuff figured out and just doing what you taught them to do, if the center of your heart is anything but just God, I need you. I need to follow after you because I can't do it on my own and I'm going to seek to bring you the glory. If that's not the center, then you're still having idle problems. And so thank God that you're in the presence of God today to maybe deal with that and ask the question, what's the priority? What's the center? What the story tells us about ourselves. I haven't followed the line very well. I've been talking about this the whole time. The story tells us about ourselves that we're prone to the same things as the Philistines and the Israelites. We are prone to the rejection of God. We're prone to pragmatism. We're prone to superstition. We're prone to idolatry. The same things the Philistines and the Israelites are known for in this passage, those same sins are true of us. So what do we do now? The power of God, the presence of God isn't in Scripture always attached to an object or a process or or, or a thing. The power of God, the presence of God is something more complex than that. But I told you that the power of God is not this simple thing that we just have this equation that we follow the equation every time and boom, the result is the presence of God. But now I'm going to tell you The presence of God is an incredibly simple thing. Not through empty practices and processes, but through a genuine heartfelt realization we enter into the presence of God. There's a really interesting tidbit in this story that's so powerful. I don't want you to ever think that the Ark of the Covenant is a superstitious object that the presence of God is just always there. But... There is unique significance to the way the presence of God was there with the ark. What was it about the ark? Was it the law? God just really loves the law, the law, the Ten Commandments. And so those tablets sitting in the ark, that's just why God attached his presence to it so often. Is it the staff that turned to a stake, that butted? Like, is that, is that why God's presence was there? I want to give you another thought. As part of the ark, you had the law inside. On the top, there was the seat where the high priest would come and he would sprinkle blood and he would sit on the mercy seat as a representative for the people. And there's something about that image that is the gateway to God's presence. Because what? What is between the people, the priest representing the people, and the law? The law which condemns people, the law which was given to point us to Christ and to show us our need for Christ, the law which was given to tell you that you're a sinner and you cannot come to God, you cannot have the fullness of God on your own through your own exertion and effort. But between the person representing the people of God and the law of God was the blood of the sacrifice. And the Ark of the Covenant was never meant to be the final story. It was always meant to be a picture and a representation. Because the simple story of the presence of God is you enter into the presence of God always through the mercy seat. Not through superstition, not through empty processes, always through the mercy seat. Where the blood of the sacrifice covers over the failures of the law and and your sin, covers over all of the accusations the law makes against you, And Christ, as your representative, allows you to enter into the holiest places, into the presence of God. It's the mercy seat, it's the blood, it's the sacrifice. Don't fall into a Christian paganism that says, I do this, therefore God must do this. That's not how you experience the presence of God. Go through the mercy seat go through the sacrifice. Go go back down that path of recognizing I'm a sinner saved by grace. And the only way I get into the presence of God is the blood of Jesus and the representative of God and the representative of all people, Jesus himself. That's the only way to get the presence. The picture of the ark is the simplicity of the presence of God. And some of us today have heard that story a hundred times. And some of us today have maybe heard parts of it before, but it's hitting a little different today. And let me tell you something right now. This is the center of the story. It's Jesus. The presence of God is not permanently attached to the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of something that it is not. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus, and what he would fully accomplish, and what he would fully do for us. That's where the presence of God is permanently, in Jesus and in those who connect with Jesus through his blood, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. So what might God be doing in you? He might be calling you to reject the idols that you've put up. And it's good to love your children. It's good to love your wife. It's good to be committed to your career and committed to ministry. All those things are good and beautiful. The most dangerous idols aren't the bad ones. The most dangerous idols are the good ones, the good things that you put into central of a place. For many of us, the problem is not that we need to destroy idols, the problem is we need to decenter our idols and recenter Yahweh the God of the universe, Jesus, the beloved son. God is working this morning to, reject, to cause us to reject idols and decenter the idols in our lives. God is working this morning to call us to receive himself. And God is working this morning to cause us to embrace true worship. And it's not a formula that works the same way every time. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some beauty in the formula too. Because the problem is that sometimes we get in our head that religion is just saying these special words. And we say these special words the special way. And God moves. So there's two errors to make about that approach. One error is to just be the superstitious Christian that says, I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read these passages. And God's going to move. That's an error to just say, doesn't matter where my heart is, I'm going to do this and then that. The other error is to completely reject the traditions, the practices, the processes. We, That's not, not what I'm advocating for. Because I'm going to say something, and I'm going to apply it this way. I'm going to ask the band to, to go ahead and come up. And I'm going to close the sermon this way. Not in a superstitious way, but in a classical practice of the church because there is so much beauty there, and the gospel is there. In Matthew, Jesus is teaching his people, is teaching his followers, and he says, when you pray, do it like this. And he gives us what's called the Lord's Prayer. So before we sing, we're going to close together, and you're going to stand up with me. Please, will you stand? And here's what I want us to do. Something we've done before, something that is an ancient practice of the church. But I want us to see the beauty because we're going to say together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But I want you to actually listen to what you're saying. These practices lose their power when we treat them like superstitions and it's just this thing that we always do. But what I want you to do is I want you to listen to the words as if it's really the first time. As if you're talking to somebody who really is your Father who really is holy, who really is seated in heaven, and listen to what you ask of him. Let's say it together. Our Father, and sorry, let's let's do it this way. I'm going to give some coaching here because I didn't put it on the screen. And so you can say it however you want. You can say our Father who art. You can say our Father in heaven. I'm going to say it from the ESV because it's right in front of me. And I'm just going to lead us, and we're going to say a few different words based on translation. And that's okay, because it's God's word. Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's sing together.